The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So if we haven't met before, I am Dave, one of the pastors here, and also get to preach up here some occasionally, so it's really good to see you this morning. So uh, I was told to tell you this by someone, uh, that we are not finished decorating for Christmas yet. So if you were thinking, like, that's all you have, TBC, is two trees, step up your game. Um, we're coming, more's coming this week, so this really just looks like your house. It's like halfway done, all right? Um, has anyone finished decorating for Christmas yet? Raise your hand. No overachievers in here. Okay. There were a lot at the last service, apparently, so... Um, but it's really good to see you all this morning. So we are finishing our series today in the book of 1 Peter. If you're just joining us for the first time today, we've been looking at the book of 1 Peter, of course, written by the Apostle Peter. And, uh, of course, the book of 1 Peter deals with the topic of suffering in great detail. And uh, so remember that Peter is writing, the context is he's writing to people who are suffering for their faith or even about to suffer even more intensely for their faith so what happens when people suffer for their faith, we can become more irritable, more critical, more ripe for division, uh, pride can start to creep in, and all that comes with that. And what hap- what's happening in this early church is that as, as the pressures on the, the outside of the church begin to intensify, that can produce pressures on the inside of the church that's happening to the people that Peter's writing to. I think we can relate to that. The last two or three years have been kind of like that in our world, in our world, of course, with as pressures happen on the outside of the church, there are things that happen inside the church that become very difficult to deal with. And so I think it's why Peter closes his letter talking a lot about humility. Now, we finished off two weeks ago um, when Chase preached that, that passage. He finished off the, the, the first half of verse 5 in chapter 5. Um, really talks about the relationship between elders and the people in the congregation. But the last half of verse 5 deals with relationships among people in the church. So looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, the second half of verse 5, where it says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think when Peter uses that image. And I love the image of someone clothing themselves with humility because when Peter uses that image, I think he might be referring to what Jesus did at the Last Supper in John chapter 13. So Peter says, put on the clothing of humility, wear it like a garment. And I think he might be drawing on the picture when Jesus took off his outer robe in the upper room and he ties it around his waist, a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. This is how a slave would dress when they would perform that task back in that time. And so Jesus takes on this role of a slave there with the disciples. But if you remember that scene, there was one disciple who took issue with it, and who was that? That was Peter. And he said, you're not going to wash my feet. No, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. And he, he wanted no part of it. He refused initially because he was shocked that Jesus wanted to wash their feet because taking on this role would be a surprising move for a rabbi. 
But it would also be a surprising move in the culture in general because in, the, in Greco-Roman culture, humility was not seen as a virtue. It was seen as a weakness. Because the Greeks believed there were really just two types of people. There were Greeks and everybody else. Or you might say Texans and everybody else. The Greeks called everyone else that wasn't them, didn't speak Greek, they called them what? They had a word for it, and it was barbarian, which comes from the Greek word barbaros. So anyone who didn't speak Greek, they saw them as an an unintelligible babbler. So there was this syllable, bar, 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 that was like our version of blah, 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 blah. So you don't speak Greek, you just bar, 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 blah, blah, blah. What is that that you're saying? So they saw these people as unintelligent babblers that didn't speak Greek, and they called them barbarians because they loved themselves, and they saw humility as a vice and not a virtue. And I think if you look at our culture today, we have a complicated relationship with pride and humility because on the one hand, we, we celebrate people who are prideful. We put them front and center in our culture because some of those popular YouTube sensations or influencers, as they say, they're popular because they're full of themselves. That's why we end up buying into them because they're so, they can be so full of themselves. We become attracted to that. But on the other hand, if you think of areas like sports, who do we tend to root for? If you're watching a, a game of some kind, they might say, this person is an easy person to cheer for or root for. It's usually because they have some inspiring story or there's some humility as a virtue that they might display. So I think in our culture at large, we have this complicated relationship with pride and humility. On the one hand, we kind of prop up the proud, but also we tend to celebrate those that have some humility. And I think even in Christian circles, our understanding of pride and humility can be a a little bit complicated. I mean, let's be honest. In, In politics, pride sells. And sadly, many believers buy into that because we see, it as, we see it as confidence and we see humility as a lack of confidence or even weakness. Listen, humility is not weakness and it's not to just think lowly of oneself. Woe is me or just, you know, I'm not good at anything. That's not what it means to be humble. C.S. Lewis once said this, he said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. The person that's thinking lowly of themselves is usually still just thinking about themselves. They can become consumed with self. Humility is one of those tricky virtues where the moment you think you have it, you no longer have it. You know, we just can't lay out a plan like 10 steps to humility and how I accomplished it. Like we can't, no one can write that book. Because what happens when you accomplish it is that you, of course you think, well, I've arrived. You become prideful about your humility. I think of that game we've all played with our kids, the game Shoots and Ladders, where you're, you're climbing, you're climbing, you're climbing, you're climbing to the top, and then suddenly you slide back down to the bottom. So as you're climbing the ladder of humility, you suddenly just slide back down to the bottom again. Or another game that my students used to play, some may still play it, I don't know, but this is a real game. It's found on Wikipedia, so it's legit. It's out there. 
But the rules, it's this mind game they used to play, and the rules are very simple. They just called it the game. And the rules are you can't think about the game or talk about the game. And if you do, you have to say, I just lost the game. And humility is kind of like that. Like the moment you start to become self-aware of like, I think, I think I'm growing in humility. You start, no, you just lost the humility game. So you, it's a tricky, tricky virtue for us to understand how to even apply this to our lives. D.L. Moody used to pray, Lord, make me humble, but don't let me know it. I think Peter is challenging these believers here to put on this attitude of humility towards one another. And here's why that's really important. Because humility makes relationships work better. So he says, put on this humility, clothe yourselves in this way towards one another in the body of Christ. And I think we see that in community. Whenever we see broken community or relationships, it usually stems from pride or a lack of humility. And so Peter's addressing that here. And then look at verse 6. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So how do we clothe ourselves with humility? Well, we can't do it by just trying harder. We only become humble by viewing ourselves in proper relationship with God. As we begin to see ourselves under his sovereign hand, under his sovereign care, and as we acknowledge that relationship with him, does it then inform our relationships in the body of Christ and we become humble towards one another only because of how we see ourselves in relationship with him? Then Peter says this phrase. He says, so that the proper time he may exalt you. Again, we... You may think back on certain people in high school or even maybe in college, and if you knew some of those people that were on certain sports teams, there was maybe someone on the team that was a bit overconfident. We might say, we might say prideful or arrogant. And whenever you'd watch the team play, you might be cheering for your team, but at the same time, whenever that person does something really good, they kind of get the half clap. Because, you know, they, they tend to exalt themselves. And we don't really want to exalt someone who's really good at exalting themselves. We, we kind of like to see that person humbled or maybe even humiliated. So we, we like it when someone who is prideful is, is brought down to size. But we also like it when someone who's humble, when they're exalted. But here it's talking about God being the one who does the exalting, not ourselves. So we understand how this tends to play out in, uh, in areas of our lives. Another pitfall for, for Christians, I think, is what I would call false humility. And I know you struggle with it because I know I struggle with it. Because in the church, we know we're supposed to be humble. So we start to play this humble game, you know. If someone, you know, says something encouraging to us or nice to us, on the outside, you know, we say all the right things, but inside we're saying, you know, more of that, please. Bring on more of that, please. And we can struggle or we can think, okay, if I'm humble, that means I'm going to be exalted. So, and I want to be exalted. And so we can really struggle with, with humility as it relates to our walk with God and also 
how we relate in the body of Christ and community. So then Peter makes this connection between humility and anxiety. And we don't generally put those in the same camp or category, do we? We don't put humility in the same space as anxiety necessarily. But here's how they're related. Worry and anxiety are rooted in pride because they deny the care of a sovereign God. So humbling ourselves looks like casting our anxieties on him. Now, in, when this is being written, I think they're, the cause of their anxiety back then may result from professing Christ in a hostile culture or loss of status, respect, losing standing in, one, in, in, in one's family or friends, maybe even losing their life. But our source of anxiety might be different today, but I think the application can be similar. Now, I know whenever we talk about anxiety, I'll admit that whenever I'm doing a sermon on anxiety, I get a little anxious because whenever we talk about it in relationship to sin, because those of us who struggle with it, and I do, we can get anxious about our anxiety. You know, I already struggle with anxiety, and now you're telling me I'm prideful? Now I'm anxious about that. And it just sort of snowballs. So as we have this discussion, I, I really think I need to address initially at least two groups that might be in the room here today. Because some of you are here and you, you truly experience debilitating anxiety. And it, it manifests itself in some physical ways that you are ashamed to admit. And you're struggling. You are struggling with it. You have struggled with it. And my goal is not to shame you in any way or to make you more anxious about your anxiety. And so that's one group. But the other group are those who may think that, you know, no one really needs counseling. Everyone's a snowflake. People are weak. Um, To that person, I say, you probably need some counseling. Or maybe you've sent other people into counseling by your view of things, right? But we need to, I think, define what kind of anxiety fits this category. Because the word comes from the Greek word merimnon, which is coming from two separate Greek words. And one means to, to tear or to divide. And the other word means the mind. So it literally means to, to, to tear or divide the mind. And when you're really anxious, it can feel like that. Like your, your mind is just being torn apart and consumed. It reminds me of uh, several years ago, we were visiting the brewers over in the Middle East, my family, and on the way back, we decided to do a quick layover in London, let the kids see parts of London, and so we took them to uh, the Tower of London, which if you've been there, you may have seen that, which is a cool place to take kids because it's, it looks kind of like a castle. The, the queen's crown jewels are kept there, and they also have some medieval torture devices, so it's, it's a great place to take the kids. And you can at least say, hey, look, my discipline for you is not that bad. I mean, look at this thing, right? So uh, they have this thing called the rack that's there. You may have seen that or know what it is, but basically the idea is they put you on this, this long, flat, slanted thing, and then they, 
they tie your arms behind you and tie your legs and they just begin pulling and they just do this crank and it's a medieval torture device and they're literally pulling someone's body apart physically. And I think about that picture, that image, as it relates to anxiety because that's, for many of us, that's what it feels like on the inside. That's what you feel like on the inside is you're just being, you're being pulled apart. John Piper defines it like this. He says, anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. So you have your, your, your hopes and dreams pulling you in one direction, but then you have life's trials just pulling you in the other direction, and you feel this great tension between those two, and it feels like you're being pulled apart. Even the English word for worry comes from an old English word, which means to, to strangle. I think that's a good image because worry squeezes the life out of us. It, it, it chokes out peace and it chokes out joy. And I know that, that many of you have already heard the statistics over the last couple of years, post-pandemic and all that came with that. But I read recently this article that was talking about just the state of, of counseling and therapy in our culture today. And the article said that six out of 10 therapists say they have no openings. No one can get in to see them. There's one counselor in New Jersey decided to launch his own practice, and six weeks in, he is booked up seeing 35 people per week. And he said he is seeing more people ask these Big and wide existential questions about meaning and purpose in life. And they're asking big questions about those things. And young people have been hit hard especially. And we're seeing drastic increases in anxiety and depression among youth. You know, in the past, many teens would only go see a counselor if someone made them go. Now they're asking to be taken to go see someone in these situations. Now listen, I am not trying to minimize or downplay the need for those things. Those are really important things. There are people that have suffered great losses and are suffering great losses. And we have many people here in our city who do some great work in those areas. We refer to people people that we know all the time. But I do wonder sometimes if if part of the problem could be helped if people were connected, of course, first to Christ, but also connected in community. Because there's still a lot of Christians, I think, that are trying to do life still alone and go solo. One counselor said, this guy Parker Hilton, he said, what I'm seeing more than anything is people who want to connect, people who feel alone, and people who feel really lost. And I think the body of Christ should be able to help with that. I think this is also confirmed. There's someone that I've read a little bit of her stuff. Her name is Jean Twenge. She is not a believer. And she did some research and released it recently on sophomores, high school sophomores. And she is a psychology professor at San Diego State. And she recently released this study on high school sophomores. And she found that the more a teen does these activities, the more likely they are to experience unhappiness and anxiety. 
And the activities are TV, texting, gaming, social media, internet. Basically, everything that they want to do. But the other side of that is these activities contribute positively to counteract some of those things. And it's sleeping seven plus hours per night, exercise, print media, looking at something on a page, working, in-person social interactions, and attending religious services. And I love when unbelievers agree with the Bible. You know, how do you know if you struggle with anxiety? Here's a question for you. How's your sleep? How are you sleeping at night? What is gnawing at you in the middle of the night? When you wake up at 3.30 a.m., what do you start thinking about? I know you do it because I do it. I do it as well. But there are those that have debilitating anxiety, and of course, if that's the case, then that should be treated and we should get help for that. But again, I wonder if sometimes we experience it because we just aren't living with, with healthy boundaries in some of these areas that you see listed here. So there can be negative anxiety, but there's also, surprisingly, I think there could be even, we might call it good anxiety. I think Paul mentions it over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, where Paul has listed off all these ways that he suffered for his faith. And then he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And if you go back and look at the list in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and see the list of what Paul's encountered for, for suffering for his faith, and I, I look at that list and I think, if I experienced all of that, I wouldn't be thinking about the churches. I'd be thinking about myself and how do, how do I get out of these really uh, harrowing situations. But Paul has this anxiety, I would even call it a good anxiety, for the churches because he's concerned for them. We would never say that's sinful, that he's concerned for the churches in this way. I think of it as it relates to our kids. I know that we have, you have, anxiety about your kids. And it can be a good anxiety, a good, a good care, a good concern for your kids. You want certain things for them. You want them to follow Christ. And if they're struggling with that or not, not living that out, we get anxious. That is a good desire, a good concern to have. But sometimes it can turn sinful and it, it becomes all-consuming and now our mind is just getting torn apart. So regardless where the source is coming from, and whether it's sinful anxiety, or even what we might call good anxiety, Peter challenges us to do something with it. In chapter 5, verse 7, he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter's focus seems to be on what we should do with it. So whether it's good anxiety or a sinful one, we have a choice. We can, we can carry it or we can cast it. And if we carry it, it it's just going to get heavier. 
And you've experienced that. Or we can cast it, and we can let God carry it. So how do we do that? Because that sounds nice. That sounds like something a preacher would say. You know, just, just cast it upon him. Give it to him. Well, how do we actually do that? So I'm going to walk you through a few ideas. And listen, I don't mean to reduce this down. This is not meant to be a formula of just do these things and you're, you're, you're good, you're okay. But I do think there's some principles we can see in the scriptures that we can apply to our lives. So how do we cast our anxieties upon God? We're going to borrow from some words of, of Paul over in Philippians chapter 4. The first is right living. We've already talked about some of those principles already and what that might look like. But I think Paul addresses a similar concept over in Philippians chapter 4. You can turn there if you want. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, where Paul says this. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So you'll see in a moment how Paul is addressing anxiety when he talks about this. And he says, there are some things for you to put into practice. Many of you have been hearing from me or learning from me, and you've seen in me an example. And Paul says, now it's time for you to put these things into practice. And then the God of peace is going to be with you. So they can see Paul as an example of someone to be followed as, as he follows Christ, and they can emulate him as he does that. Sometimes you and I need to go find someone or some people who's more mature as a believer in their walk with Christ and say, I know you've walked a really tough road. Can you, can you share with me like, how you did that? Like, how did you cope with that loss? How did you make it through that? And, and see in them an example and, and pursue a friendship, a relationship with someone that can maybe help you walk through whatever you're walking through right now. I think community and relationships come into play here as you seek out those kinds of examples that Paul's talking about here. There's also right praying. And I know, again, as I say that, you think, of course, the preacher's always going to say, you just got to pray about it. Of course, we're going to say prayer, right? It's the, it's the natural response. And it might sound too easy and obvious, but the kind of prayer really matters. And if you go back in Philippians 4, verse 6, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So that first word for prayer, it really means worship or adoration. So what Paul is saying is that we don't just, just rush into the requests. When we're anxious or worried, we don't just jump straight to that and just dive headlong into the request. But first, we've got to remember who we're talking to. And we go to God and we worship. 
and we praise. We start there. There's a really good book by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's really a, comp- a, a compilation of some sermons he taught on this topic. The name of the book, though, is called Spiritual Depression, but don't let the title scare you away. You should still probably read it. It's a really good book. But he, um, in one of the sermons in that book, he says this, before you make a request known unto God, pray, worship, adore. Come into the presence of God, and for the time being, forget your problems. Do not start with them. Just realize that you are face-to-face with God. You and I have to, at times, go to God and just remember who we're talking to. And, and so we start, with, we start with praise and adoration before we jump to the requests. And then we can move into supplication. And that is coming to God and sharing our real needs and problems with him. And yes, God does want us to do that. But then there's a word that he uses. He says, he says with thanksgiving. What does that mean? So as we bring these requests to him, we are gonna, we're going to thank him in advance for the outcome. Now, I know we're about to start, this is Thanksgiving week, and we're all aware of that. And I know it can sound cliche, you know, we're supposed to be thankful, we say it obviously, but do we realize that being thankful is, is ground zero in the war against anxiety? Most of us think of anxiety as just being, it's circumstantial. Well, I experienced this, and so now I have anxiety. That might be partly true. But anxiety is really connected to how we view God and our belief about God. And it's why I think right thinking about God is really, really important. And again, I'm not saying, you know, just stop worrying, you know, pull yourself together. This is not just mind over matter. Because if someone's not a Christ follower, our thinking is not going to be on the right things. It has to flow from a relationship with Jesus. So there is is right thinking to be done here. And look back again at verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So how are we able to cast our anxieties upon him? Because we know he cares for us. I think a main source of our anxiety is that we don't think he does. We don't think he cares. And remember, don't forget the person writing this this book, this letter. It's Peter. This is not some abstract concept for Peter that, that Jesus really cares for him. He knew this firsthand. Think of all the stories of Peter in his life. Just being called to be a disciple of Jesus in this real personal way. Or the time that, that, Jesus, that, that Peter went and walked on water then began to sink and then Jesus helped him back up into the boat. Or the time that that Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Or the time that he's standing around that fire and Peter denies Jesus that he even knew him three times. And then later on that beach by the Sea of Galilee, 
what happens? He's restored. And he says, now go feed my sheep. If anyone knows that Peter is cared for by Jesus, it's Peter. And that's why he's writing these words, I think. Martin Lloyd-Jones also says, if while we pray to God, we have a grudge against him in our hearts, we have no right to expect that the peace of God will keep our heart and our mind. If we go on our knees feeling that God is against us, we may as well get up and go out. The writer and counselor, Larry Crabb, used to say this. He would say, this is a person who is, is shaking their fist at God. What is the thing that you have shaken your fist at God about or currently shaking your fist at God about? We've got to approach him with thanksgiving, recognizing how much he cares for us. And then in verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now you might say, well, I was feeling better about my anxiety until you told me there's a lion trying to devour me. Now I'm not doing so great. But listen, we should cast our cares upon him, but we don't become careless. We, we can't forget that we have a real enemy who's trying to annihilate us. I think a great temptation for me and for you might not be just outright rejection of the faith, but just being, just being lulled to sleep, just becoming drowsy, you know, not staying alert. And then before we know it, our, our response to circumstances looks no different than that of an unbeliever. Do you know that the word devil means accuser or slanderer? And, and some have heard those accusations. Some have listened to those accusations. Some have believed those accusations and those lies. So Peter compares Satan to this, this roaring lion who's trying to devour his, God's people. Recently, my kids uh, turned on this show. We watched it part of it last week. It's, an, I think, an older show. But you may have heard of this guy. It's called The Lion Ranger. And his name's Kevin Richardson, and he's from South Africa. And listen, you've heard stories of people like this, these, these animal trainers, and people like this person who, and whenever you watch stuff like this, at first you're drawn into it. You think, this is amazing how this guy has infiltrated this pride of lions and raised them up since they were little cubs, and now they just accept them as one of their own. And you start looking at your own cat across the room and you're just like, it's just like, it's just like that. It's just like my cat. It's just a bigger version of my own cat. And you see how the people like this, they, they really get into this role. How would you like to have a lion do your hair in the morning for you? Like, that'd be a weird experience. But it's just this trust they develop with these big cats. And then you've seen shows like this, I know, but then and at first, of course, you're drawn into it, and you start to think, look how tame and cute these lions are, and we forget what they're capable of. That in just a moment, they could kill this person. And of course, you've seen those stories, too, of people 
of these lions or these big cats attacking their trainers or unsuspecting tourists. But this is exactly what you and I do with sin and evil. We cozy up to it because we think it's, it's tame, it's friendly, and we forget that there is someone who's trying to destroy us. And you've also seen the shows where the lions, they, they attack a herd animal, a herd-type animal, and, and what do they do? They try to isolate one. They try to isolate one, get it away from the crowd, the, the herd, and when they do, they can usually win. And I think we see that, but whenever we are isolated, whenever we are pulled out and separated from community, that's where sin and temptation just tends to grow and flourish is whenever we're in isolation. There is one who wants to devour us, and many times, me and you, we cooperate with him. About 20 years ago, when Mel Gibson Gibson made the, uh, the Passion of the Christ film, he was asked by someone, you know, why did you create the, the Satan character in the film the way that you did? And if you saw that, that movie, there were certain parts of the film where the character, you really couldn't quite tell, like, is this an attractive character or is it a, how's it supposed to look? And so there were times where it looked like this, other times where the character looked like more evil and more just how you would expect it to look. And he said, I wanted to depict Satan in that way because that's what evil looks like much of the time. It looks alluring and attractive and it draws us in, but then sometimes we see how ugly it really is and it devours us. So how do we respond? Peter writes in verse 9, how do you respond when someone is out to devour you in this way? He says in verse 9 of chapter 5, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Over in James chapter 4, verse 7, James says, resist him and he will flee. There are times when you have been strongly tempted towards someone or something, and it seemed so powerful and so controlling, almost like it was inevitable that you were going to fall to temptation. But you stood firm. You resisted. And what happened? The temptation didn't gain a stronghold. And your ability to resist only grew in strength. Now, that doesn't mean that The temptation totally goes away, but its power has been weakened. Resist him, and he will flee from you. So how do we stand firm? Well, remember, I think Peter says this here, we don't stand alone. We have the privilege of seeing brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who are suffering, but standing firm in the temptation, and we get to draw upon their experience and draw upon knowing them and seeing how they're responding to those situations, understanding that whatever we're encountering in our, in our world today, we're able to through the power of the Holy Spirit as well. 
And then Peter reminds them what's coming. He says, God's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. That means whatever losses you and I have suffered in this life, he's going to make it right in eternity. And then Peter closes a letter, verse 12. He says, by Silvanus, that's also Silas. You may remember Paul and Silas and some of the epistles. A faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She, meaning the church, who's at Babylon, really referring to the church in Rome and all of the human institutions, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark. That's the one here with the Gospel of Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. I thought we could apply that here this morning in our service. We're not going to do that, though. Um, then he says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. So how is it that we don't need to fear this lion who's trying to devour us because we worship another one. The lion of Judah. His name is Jesus. And he's the one who brings true peace. Over in Revelation 5, the apostle John, he sees in his vision one of the elders saying, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered And then over in Amos chapter 1, the prophet says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And he did. Because when Jesus is on that cross, he yells out, It is finished. It is finished. Because that lion is also a lamb spilling his own blood to bring us peace. Listen to these words. For the believer, peace is not to be found in the ease of life. Real peace is only found in the presence, power, and grace of the Savior, the King, the Lamb, the I Am. That peace is yours even when the storms of life take you beyond your natural ability, wisdom, and strength. God, we thank you for this letter, the words of Peter, written to your church back then, but also today. God, we thank you that we get to be encouraged by someone who saw suffering firsthand, things that we can't even imagine. And God, we thank you for the ways it encourages us, the ways it helps us in our relationship with you, but also helps us in our relationship with one another but also helps us in our relationship to the broader culture God we know that there are many in this room who have experienced just intense suffering whether it be a while ago or even now God we pray that wherever they are right now we pray that you would meet them there in that pain and that suffering whether it be from suffering for their faith or whether or not life has just happened to them. But God, we pray that you would be our strength, that you'd be our encouragement, that we'd worship you 
and thank you for your grace in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.